Hello, and welcome to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast. I'm your host, Matt Cadwallader, and you can find us at hkspolicycast.org or follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast. In the spring of this year, 2014, we had on the program Professor Jane Mansbridge, who has been studying how political negotiation is conducted and why in the United States is come to be represented by gridlock. One of the problems she cited was that increased scrutiny, often in the form of transparency, has made it difficult for compromise to be found. It's an issue that isn't limited to the United States. Our guest today is Professor Michael Ignatieff of the Kennedy School's Shorentine Center on Media, Politics, and Public Policy. Professor Ignatieff was leader of Canada's Liberal Party from 2008 to 2011 and was no stranger to the art of political machinations and how open information can affect them. Professor Ignatieff, thanks for joining us. Nice to be here. So uh, now before any of our listeners start rolling their eyes at the idea of a politician coming on to uh, argue against transparency, I, w I should insist that you're not exactly against it. Um, there's just more nuance to, the, to its role in, in public discourse. Yeah, let's make a distinction between transparency and accountability. If you're an elected public official, you owe uh, the public an account of what you've done, not only in election times, but all down the road. But there's a distinction between being accountable and being transparent. There were occasions when I was a leader of a political party in Canada when I did not want transparency to be blunt. I was running a caucus of members of parliament I wanted to have confidential discussions with that caucus. I did not want it to leak. If it leaked, I was in trouble. Uh, and the point about uh, uh, the secrecy of caucus discussions is that it makes caucus discussion possible. If it's all going to be leaked the minute it comes out of your mouth, then you speak differently. If you're speaking to your colleagues, it's one thing. If you're actually you know, really speaking to the press, um, it's another. So. There's a real case in, in, uh, in family life and in public life for transparency. The African proverb, all truth is good, but not all truth is good to say, is important in private life and also in public life. That is to say, I think there's a case for um, um, uh, holding things close to your vest in in private and in public life and in public life because you're in the you know you're in the cockpit you're in the you're in a um, uh, the media is right outside the caucus door mm -hmm. uh, the cameras are on you the whole time uh, you can't keep a bunch of people together unless you can keep a few secrets and uh, that's just a essential to to unit cohesion it's an it's crucial to policy formulation mm -hmm. You know, if you don't have some secrecy, you you got to have a place where people come up with jackass ideas, to be blunt. And then you, you argue them down, and, right. and then you come up with something better. Um, there, there's got to be... There got to be places in politics where what goes on in Vegas stays in Vegas, to use a phrase. And I, I, think, I think the public understands that. What they, mm -hmm. what they don't want is... Um, a lack of accountability. What they don't want is politicians carrying on as if they could just make up the rules themselves. You have to give an account to the public because it's the public who put you there. But the public doesn't need to know everything that's going on. Well, that it, it excuse me if it does, sounds a little antithetical to uh, representative democracy. I mean, most voters would say, you know, I'm voting this person in. I want to make sure they're representing my interests. Um, you know, how 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 do you balance that? Well, I don't think they. 
I don't think they have to know what you're doing every hour of the day. <laughs> and I think they don't need to know what you're doing in the caucus. Um, representation, being a representative, you have to balance the interests of the public with the interests of the party. Mm -hmm. And the third term here is your own conscience. Representation is not simply being a transmission belt for the opinions of the public. It's also your own judgment matters, uh, what the party says matters. And let's be frank, sometimes you have to take a bullet for the party. You know, mm -hmm. the party will take a position that really is poison in your own district, but is just crucial to winning some other political advantage somewhere else. So you have to take one for the team. And, and that's how politics actually works. And sometimes, you know, this is painful. You have to suck it up. Uh, and some of the deliberations about that in a caucus where, you know, a, a politician from one part of the country is saying this is poison in my district and another person in the other part of the country says, look, I got to have this or I'm going mm -hmm. down. All that kind of what we call horse trading just has to go on in private. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, and when it goes in, when it goes out in public, um, the unit, the party looks incoherent. It looks at speaking in a couple of voices at once. Um, parties, leaders have to lead. Parties have to have cohesion. The only the way they can have cohesion is to have a bit of secrecy. Mm -hmm. Now, in the United States in particular, that's kind of difficult, especially because of the outsized influence of money in politics. Uh, Maybe it's because I'm not creative enough to find a middle ground on that, but uh, are there ideas for how you can steer around these two issues? Well, I, I here's where being a Canadian makes me see it differently than things are seen in the, the States. I think in the States, because of the First Amendment, there's a very strong constitutional doctrine that says that money is speech. Mm -hmm. That is, that money ought to have the freedom that speech has. And I think most other democracies just don't agree. Right. I mean, in Canada, we think money is power. Mm -hmm. And so we put very, very tight limits on campaign expenditure in elections. There are federal limits on what you can spend. There are federal limits on um, how money is raised. Um, I'll tell you, one of the best things about being in politics was I could walk into a room full of rich men and women and know that the most they could ever give me was $1,500. Well, I don't sell that cheap, right? So, so it was a great protection of my virtue that mm -hmm. there were strict limits. Everything had to be receipted and accounted for. And I just, uh, it kept me honest and it also kept me free of money. And I think the American doctrine that we really can't do anything about the power of big money is slowly, to be blunt, uh, strangling your democracy. And, and I think it really is time to look over the garden fence at other jurisdictions. I'm not saying anything that we do in Canada is exactly applicable here. Mm -hmm. I, I get that. Yeah. But Britain, France, Denmark, Norway, Canada... Latin American countries, other countries just do the money thing better. And I think this First Amendment doctrine is strangling the capacity of America to get money under control. And let's remember that uh, there have been recurrent and sometimes quite successful attempts to get the money under control from the progressive era in the 19, 1920s right through perhaps until the 60s. Money was under some kind of control in America. Now it's just got completely out of control. And um, so 
that has to be sorted out. And, and there would be an example where to get that done, you have to have some very delicate negotiations in camera to get back to our theme of secrecy. Mm -hmm. You've got to have some guys in a room, men and women who, you know, shut the door, get the press out of the way, mm -hmm. get the get the get the uh, get the staffers out of the way and just cut this cut this sausage up, mm -hmm. you know, and it won't be perfect and it won't be pretty. But that's what politics is. One of the things just behind our feeling about um, transparency, our desire that everything that politicians do be under public scrutiny is that we don't trust politicians at all. Mm -hmm. Transparency is our response to the collapse of trust. Okay, okay. I get that. But it's the wrong solution. The mm -hmm. right solution is to say, okay, we elect these politicians, let's let them get on with their job, which is to get into rooms and cut up the pie. Mm -hmm. And then we demand accountability. When right. you come out of the room, you better be able to justify what deal you just did. If this deal isn't good for us, you're going down. Right. But give, create some space of secrety, secrecy for the deal to be done. Right. And at the moment, we've got this extreme partisanship, which means that anybody who goes into a room uh, with the other party is engaged in betrayal. Uh, is engaged in, you know, is is right. you know not being true to his side, and that just makes politics, that is the art of the deal, impossible. Well, it seems like there are two types of transparency. There's the you know regulations on open meetings, those kinds of things, but there's also you know the press, and the press is usually supplied by the people in the room, not necessarily the the uh, reporters themselves. Mm -hmm. So if there's a need for some backroom wheeling and dealing, um, that's really being undermined by the political establishment itself in many yes, ways. Yes, to some extent. I'm not blaming. I'm not blaming yeah. the press or the public. The political establishment is... Is that something that can be avoided, though? I mean... Well, you just got to have political leadership. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, there are famous stories about this. Tip O'Neill, the Democratic uh, leader in the House, and the President Reagan... Uh, roughing each other up during the weekend on Thursday night, sitting down for a glass of scotch in the White House and cutting the deal that led to Social Security reform. This mm -hmm. is in the late 80s. That's a classic example. Nobody was in the room. Nobody knows what they said, but they got the thing done. That's that's politics. Mm -hmm. And we look back on both of those leaders, one Democrat, one Republican, with a lot of nostalgia, precisely because they knew the public put you there to do the deal. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the the... The other, I push the point even further. Um, when we had a session in Ideasphere at the Kennedy School in the spring, uh, a, a woman in the audience who was on a public board uh, in California and may have been a zoning board or, mm -hmm. or something like that in local government said to us very sharply that when her meetings were public, nothing got done. <laughs> They had to get the press and the public out of the room in order to do the deals on zoning. And then you take those deals into the public, and mm -hmm. they are judged and accepted or rejected. But if everything's public, business slows down. Right. That's the paradox. And I think democracy, paradoxically, needs a certain amount of secrecy at the heart of it. Mm -hmm. Uh, and to our listeners, if you want to watch that, uh, the video of that Ideasphere presentation, we'll have a link to it in the show notes so you can go to uh, our website and find it there. Um, I also wanted to talk, something that you had, you've mentioned before um, is about the tenor of our political debate and how there's 
a difference between like the substance of an issue and the standing of the person who's making the case for the issue. Can you talk yeah, about I that? Think, I think one of the things we don't talk about enough in politics is the fact that politics is really a battle not between contending visions or between tending issues. It's a battle over your right to be heard. Another way to put this is in my political life, and I spent five and a half years in politics, I was never once attacked for what I said. I was never attacked on policy. What I was always attacked for who I was. Mm-hmm. You know, elite Harvard snob or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. whatever it what whatever well, you were, it was. You were particularly vulnerable because I was. You were, you're being I was, attacked as a carpetbagger. I was. Bagger, right? I, was <laughs> I was vulnerable right right across the board, and I'm not right. complaining. My point yeah. is not to complain. I had a great time in politics. I urge every young listener of this program to get into politics. But I'm saying you're going to be in a battle over your standing, mm-hmm. your right to be heard, and you. In order to control that, win that battle, you have to tell a narrative to your audience that says, here is the messenger, here's who the messenger is, and you have to get that message out before you can get your message out. Mm. You have to have a message about the messenger before the message can be heard, if you understand what I'm saying. And mm-hmm. a great example of this would be uh, Barack Obama. Barack Obama. Uh, coming out of nowhere but telling an incredible story that says my story, my personal story, is the story of America, and only in America could my story come true. Well, that gave him standing in order to be able to say everything else he wanted to say. And um, so this is the key battle in modern politics. Mm -hmm. It seems like that is a little bit in conflict with, if you're a voter and you want to know about the person you're electing, you want to know their motives. How do you shift that debate without, you know, while still maintaining some semblance of uh, understanding of a politician's motives? Well, I think motives are important. Uh, and, and I think that's what standing is all about. Do I trust this person's mm-hmm. motives? People's motives are always obscure and unclear. Um, so what you do is kind of find a proxy for motive, which is what's their life story? What's right. their motive? Do I identify with this person's life story? If you do, then you tend to trust their motives. Um, and so that, that's how we do it. Um, mm-hmm. But political communication is incredibly complicated for that reason because it's always at so many levels at once there's the you're talking about the issues but people are not really listening to what you're saying about the issues they're listening to another music track altogether which is can I trust this person and to get an answer to that question they have to ask well who is this person has have they lived the life I have lived are they likely to understand where I'm coming from mm-hmm. um, so and a politician has to understand that there are at least three levels of communication going on. And so at the Kennedy School, we try and treat, teach them to communicate at three levels mm-hmm. at once. So it's not so much about attempting to rise above and you know stick to the issues as, as everyone tries to talk about. It's, it's really more uh, a proposition for politicians to say, pay attention to this. Yes, and I, I think rising above it, when when you think let's rise above it you've already lost you 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 got to take seriously the fact that uh, you're talking to strangers they have no reason to trust you you have to find some narrative of connection 
that kind of grabs them by the throat or by the lapels and says, now, listen to me. You know, I, I am one of you. I am connected to you. I know where you, I, I know what you're feeling. Uh, and great politicians, and I certainly was not a great politician, great politicians have that uncanny ability to, uh, to connect to people, to make them feel they're being listened to, and by that means get themselves listened to. Mm -hmm. And uh, so uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fine art. Well, Professor Michael Ignatieff, thank you so much for being on PolicyCast. Pleasure. You've been listening to the Harvard Kennedy School PolicyCast, produced by Matt Cadwallader and Molly Lanzarota. Follow us on Twitter at PolicyCast. Thank you.